0: Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, with me, as always, the incomparable... Ellie Mistal.
1: I'm on vacation in 23 and a half hours, and I'm just, I'm like offended that I have to still be at work. There should be some kind of pre-flight vacation thing where like the last 24 hours before your work vacation, you also don't have to work.
0: Yeah, I don't think it works that way. But, you know, congratulations on vacation. (laughs) Have a little audience applause there because, yeah, I figured out how to do sound effects.
1: Um, I'm not going to be vacationing <laughs> in New Jersey like our president, um, because I have... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Class? Um, mm. Where are you going? Yeah, I wish you didn't ask that. Yeah, that kind of is going to blow my spot up. Uh, oh, so it's n- it's less classy than New Jersey? I'm going to Sesame Place with oh, my that's awesome. uh, two children, so I will be spending a good portion of my vacation in a piss-filled water park. That's... I mean, hate. I don't mean to defame Sesame Place. Sesame Place, I'm sure, is, we've been there before. It's a great place for children, and, you know. Chlorine does amazing things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm going to be drinking some starting tomorrow. Anyway, so... 23 hours and uh, 25 minutes.
0: Let's get let's get this over with. All right. So, uh, did you have anything you wanted to complain about? today? I did.
1: I actually did want to complain about something today. I was going to complain about Trump, but um, today on Above the Law, today when we're recording this today on Above the Law, Kyle McInty wrote just an explosive report about what the ABA is doing to its job statistics that they're requiring law schools um, to report. And, you know, the long and the short of it is that the ABA is just trying to make it easier for law schools to lie and mislead students about their employment statistics. They've, under the guise of simplifying it and efficiency, um, they've made all these changes that, for instance, now allow law schools to lump in jobs that the school themselves are paying for with actual jobs that people get, which is going to mislead students, um, they're no longer requiring law schools to report the denominator, you know, how many students are there, right? So it's it makes it so much harder to get a good statistical representation of what percentage of the graduating class um, is employed. It's just a lot of sneaky, dare I say, Trumpian Bull crap. That's really just designed to uh, to mislead prospective students. Um, It's horrible. And I I, I just read this report. I, I can't believe they've done it.
0: Wow. Well, the ABA annual meeting is right around the corner. So maybe we'll get a chance to ask some people what in the world they're thinking. No, I'm pissed, but I mean, again, vacation, so come on. Right, fair enough. (laughs) All right, well, what we wanted to talk about today, uh, some of you who are regular listeners know we had Tajinder Singh on a couple weeks ago talk about the Supreme Court term. One topic we did not cover uh, when we went through all the big things that happened in the Supreme Court was the election law stuff that happened uh, this term. And the reason for that is now abundantly obvious because we have Professor Rick Hassan from Irvine out here. They'll like guru of election law. So we've brought him on to talk to us about not only the election and districting cases that we dealt with in this term, but what's on tap for the future and just election law generally. But uh Uh-oh. Professor Hassan first of all, say hi. Hello. <laughs>
1: How you doing? I'm doing well. I wanted to start with just for our listeners, because um, I think it's I think your work here um, has been so crucial. Can you just start by explaining to everybody what this voter fraud commission thing is and why it's terrible?
2: Sure. So you may remember that before the election, Donald Trump was claiming that there was a lot of fraud going on, especially in minority areas like Philadelphia. Uh, And he was claiming that people were voting 5 or 10 or 15 times. He kind of abandoned that claim after he won. Uh, but because he lost <laughs> the popular vote, I think, he claimed, based on some really bogus and unsupported evidence, that three to five million non citizen voters voted in the election. He was trying to explain why he lost the popular vote by about three million votes to Hillary Clinton. And he said in an interview right after the election on ABC that he believes. All of these millions of fraudulent votes went for Hillary Clinton, not one went to him. Uh, So this has been one of his obsessions, I think related to the fact that he lost the popular election. And he said back in January that he was gonna form a commission to investigate this phantom voter fraud. He finally formed the commission, it took a number of months. Uh, It's not like other election commissions we've seen, which are headed by bipartisan leaders, one Democrat, one Republican, like we had one commission. With President Carter and President Ford, you know, elder statesmen of of each party, this is dominated by Republicans. And it's dominated by a number of Republicans who have a history of making false and exaggerated claims of voter fraud and using it as a basis to uh, argue that uh, we need to make our voting laws tighter. So to make it harder for people to register or make it harder for people to vote, requiring the ID or cut back on early voting. And so this commission has been formed The Secretary of State of Kansas, Chris Kobach, is the vice chair. Uh, The vice president, Pence, is the chair, but it looks like Kobach is the one running the show. Uh, One of the controversies early on is they want to collect data from states to figure out, with some kind of program that is apparently going to be run by White House staff, how much fraud there might be. We're not sure exactly what it is. A lot of states have resisted giving data. Some of the data that's requested, it's illegal for states to give. Even Kobach himself as the Secretary of State of Kansas, couldn't give all the data that the commission wanted, but they are getting some data. They're going to do something. They're likely going to issue a report. That report will likely claim that if voter fraud is not proven, it's at least a potential problem. And, And I would suggest, I expect they will suggest changes to election rules to make it harder to register and to vote.
1: One of the things that we've been tracking is the, again, we're trying to read the tea leaves a little bit, um, but the potential for them to, for them, co the Republicans, to really try to, try to roll back the motor voter law and really try to make it significantly difficult for people to register. Right now, as I think most people know, you can register uh, at the same place where you uh, get your driver's license. They might try to take that away.
2: Yeah, that's right. Now, Motor voter law passed in 1993, signed by President Clinton. I'd say th- three provisions to keep an eye on. One is the part that requires that states offer registration opportunities, not just at motor vehicle departments, but at public service agencies like welfare agencies, which has always been a target for Republicans because they think that people likely to vote Democrat register there. So one change might be where you have to offer registration. A second change might relate to what has been Kobach's key issue, which is Allowing states to require documentary proof of citizenship, show us your papers before you're allowed to register to vote, something he's been fighting for and so far losing in courts on on that question. And the third part of the motor voter law that could be uh, up for some grabs is the part that requires states to keep their voting rolls clean. And those rules could be changed uh, with the potential to, if you make the rules too tight, disenfranchise legitimate voters. And we know that Kobach's been involved in a program called CrossCheck, which is a voluntary program that some states have been participating in that tries to match voters and remove duplicate voters across states who might be registered in more than one state. According to one study out of Stanford, for every one legitimate voter caught who might be uh, registered in two states, it looks like the program finds 200 false positives. That is 99.5% error rate uh, with the potential to exclude eligible voters from the voting rolls based on this bad data. And it looks like the data that the presidential commission is going to get is going to be worse data because it's not going to include things that make it easy to match people and make sure you have the right uh, you know, uh, John Smith uh, in, across two states.
1: When the courts look at this, and this is a good way to start to transition to the Supreme Court, uh, but when, when courts look at this, do we think that they're going to be moved by evidence? I mean, it's weird for, we know in this in this world that most things the Trump administration is trying to do, um, uh, the court has almost become the third house of the legislature um, in its importance right now. Um, are are these kinds of evidentiary standards going to be persuasive, do you think, to the justices? Are they going to care that, you know, as you said, that for every one positive, you get 200 false positives? Do you think that's going to be persuasive in any way
2: well uh, you know i don't know that any issue directly related to the commission will get before the supreme court but the court does have a case that's coming up likely in the fall a case out of ohio on what the motor voter law standards are for purges that is what do you have to show in order to remove someone from the rolls is it enough that they haven't voted in a few elections or do you have to do more and so the court's going to be considering that question Uh, i expect that uh, we could well see the court divide along party and ideological lines that is yeah. the republican appointed justices being more willing to defer to the state when it says it needs to do these things to prevent fraud and the democratic appointed justices being resistant out of fear of disenfranchisement you know these ju- yeah. these justices live in the world like the rest of us they get their news from the same places we get our news and uh, don't you know say that. If, you're, if you're watching <laughs> fox news uh, versus you're watching msnbc you have a different picture of how much voter fraud there might be and how big of a problem it is. And so I think that colors their worldviews. I'm not saying that any of the justices are making decisions consciously to help the political party from which they came, but they kind of get a worldview. And we, we see this in the lower courts too. When, when North Carolina's very strict voting law was challenged, uh, we had a Republican appointed judge in North Carolina say in a 485 page opinion, the law's A OK. It went to a panel of three three judges uh, on the Fourth Circuit, all Democratic judge appointees, who said, no, it's intentional race discrimination. It targets African-Americans with almost surgical precision. And then on emergency motion, it went to the Supreme Court, which divided four to four. This is when Scalia had died and Gorsuch hadn't gone to the court, though dividing along the party ideological lines that I described. And with the addition of Gorsuch, if that continues... We might see party line decisions in these voting cases going forward.
0: You know, so want to talk a little bit about that case. But before, back to the Kobach thing, my favorite part about this whole Kobach commission thing, of course, is this ACLU matter that's going on in the circuit where he's in trouble. Because it, like, if you're one of those people who believes that this administration is not so much evil, but the gang that can't shoot straight, he's being sued over some documents that they want released that he is in contempt of not, by not releasing. And there are documents that the ACLU knows exist because he took a picture with Trump with the things in his hand and high resolution cameras being what they are. Everyone knows those documents now exist. So they were requested.
2: Right, so this is part of of this long standing case uh, involving this proof of citizenship that Kobach wants to be able to require in federal elections. So far courts have said you can't do that. And the ACLU, in discovery, asked for this document, which we know from the picture was a document where Kobach was suggesting some changes to that 1993 motor voter law, the National Voter Registration Act. And Kobach said the documents are not responsive. A federal magistrate judge took an in-camera look, took a look without letting the other party see it, and said – Uh, No, they are responsive, and your answers are misleading, and you're fined $1,000, and VACL, you can now take your deposition about this document. Kobach appealed that sanction to the regular district court judge. The district court judge not only affirmed the $1,000 sanction, but said, you've done a bunch of other misleading things, too. (laughs) And and then Kobach went to the Tenth Circuit and tried to stop the deposition, claiming this is going to deter him from providing candid advice to the president. And uh, uh, just uh, yesterday, as as we're taping, the, the Tenth Circuit panel, two judges, one Democratic-appointed judge, one Republican-appointed judge, said, no, we're not stopping the deposition. Now, unfortunately for all of us, uh, the magistrate's order says that the deposition is not public. The ACLU can't release a transcript or a recording or anything. The information may come out in later filings. But as of now, this is not going to be public. It's a 60-minute Deposition And the magistrate judge was so concerned that Kobach would stonewall and not answer questions that the magistrate judge will be present to rule on objections immediately. Uh, wow. I mean, this is really unusual.
1: Wow. <laughs> that is a straight up, you cannot be trusted.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, well, so no, we teased there the North Carolina cases. Uh, so North Carolina redistricting now I had an interview when I for another show for the LTN network one of our on the road series last year I talked to a Republican state legislator in North Carolina and he was he was duly dumbfounded by the idea that anyone would think that what they were doing was wrong I disagreed however, the real crux of the problem like I the the one sympathy I mean I, I think there are bad actors there but the sympathy one would have is that, You have to take race into account for certain voter right issues, but you can't let it predominate for others. And where that line is, is not entirely clear all the time. Is that fairly accurate?
2: Yeah. Let me just back up for a second and say that the North Carolina case that I I was referring to was a different North Carolina case. Oh, okay. This was a case involving their strict voter ID and other law. Oh, okay. And in that uh, case... I think I was a little partially responsible for this. North Carolina had filed a cert petition after the Fourth Circuit said that this law targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. They filed a cert petition. And, and after that happened, you got a Democratic governor, a Democratic attorney general. And I said, uh, I wrote a piece in Slate. I said, hey, why don't, why don't they try and withdraw the cert petition? And they did. And <laughs> the North Carolina legislature said, no, you can't do that. We speak for North Carolina. And the attorney general said, no, we speak for North Carolina. A bunch of filings in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decides not to hear the case. Chief Justice Roberts issues a statement respecting the denial of cert, uh, something unusual to do that, but he does, you know, not unheard of. But And he says, This is a mess. It was a bizarre set of circumstances fighting over who speaks for North Carolina. Don't take this as any ruling on the merits. And <clears throat> the Republicans in North Carolina took that as a signal oh, okay, we're going to enact a new voter ID law, and so they're already talking about that. So just to bracket that, that's one thing that's going on in North Carolina. I could teach an entire election law class just using cases from North Carolina. (laughs) Uh, I really could. I mean, it really covers everything. So there have been a series of cases challenging North Carolina's redistricting. I should point out that when Democrats were in charge – They drew some very funky lines themselves, you know, drawing lines to favor your party is something both Democrats and Republicans do. We hear more about it from Republicans these days because Republicans control more state legislatures, but both parties have done this. And in fact, one of the key voting cases from the 1990s was a case called Shaw versus Reno about a couple of congressional districts in North Carolina. Those districts have now, to this point, same districts been considered by the Supreme Court in five separate cases now with Republicans (laughs) in charge. So it's just just a mess. And you're right. The Voting Rights Act says you must take race into account to make sure that you're not depriving minority voters of the same opportunity as others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. But the courts also said since that 1993 case, Shaw versus Reno, if you make race the predominant factor in districting, that violates the Equal Protection Clause. You have to hit kind of that sweet spot. Initially, these cases were brought to by conservatives to challenge Democratic districts that were seen as taking race too much into account. Now, Democrats have revived this claim and they are trying to bring these racial gerrymandering cases. And so far, they've been pretty successful. Cases out of Alabama, cases out of Virginia last year, the Bethune Hill case, and now two cases out of North Carolina, one involving congressional districts and one involving the state legislative districts, both found to be racial gerrymanders by the Supreme Court. Now, after in the congressional case, after the lower court found that the lines were a racial gerrymander, the North Carolina General Assembly came back, adopted new lines, and the head of this uh, legislative leader gets up and says, We are doing this for partisan reasons. This is a partisan gerrymander, which is kind of strange to say that was the defense, as in race has nothing to do with it, even though <laughs> 90% plus
1: of African American voters vote for
2: Democrats. And so, you know, you have this really odd situation. Uh, They asked one of the legislative leaders in a state that's essentially 50-50, Democrat-Republican, why did you draw 10 of your 13 congressional districts to be majority Republican? And the answer was, I couldn't figure out how to draw an 11th that would be Republican. (laughs) So, uh, you know, so now the question that's coming back to the court is a pending North Carolina case, but it's coming up in a a Wisconsin case called Gill versus Whitford is whether the court's going to start policing partisan gerrymandering. Put aside the race issue. What if you draw lines to favor your political party and hurt the other party? For decades, the court's been divided over whether you could bring these kind of claims and what they look like. This may be the last chance, while Kennedy is still on the court, for the court to rein in some of that partisan gerrymandering.
1: Joe, I actually don't know what your opinion is on Gill. Do you think partisan gerrymandering should be okay? Do you think it's something that the court should I mean, stop? I mean,
0: I've been—I'm one of those people who thinks that we need to— And I I know it it will take a lot and there's federalism issues, but I'm one of those guys who really likes the setups that some states pursue where they take it out of the legislature's hands. There's a nonpartisan group of people who decide lines. I would prefer not to have political actors deciding those lines.
1: But do you think that's interesting? And do you think that the people who should force them to do that are the courts or the political process itself?
0: obviously it would be nicer if the political process did itself well, we had the situation a few years ago where like an upstate ballot measure did it i'm not the biggest fan in the world of direct democracy ballot measures but to the extent that that happened i thought that was a great way because it you know proved that there were no you know no funny business but you know, it doesn't really matter to me who does it obviously that makes it easy it's easy to defend but
1: professor hansen do you what do you think Un-gilled. Do you think the courts need to start policing this? I was hoping you were not going to ask me that.
2: Uh, <laughs> I've long been on record as saying that, you know, I don't know that there is a manageable standard for courts to do it. Like Joe, I think that nonpartisan districting by commission or multi-party districting by commission, while not perfect, is probably better. Uh, and I like that states can use the initiative process in some states, like we did in California and in Arizona, to adopt it. Uh, but I've been concerned that courts don't have a standard. I'm starting to change my tune for two reasons. Uh, one is uh, this race and party question that we've talked about, at least in places like Texas and North Carolina. It's so hard to disentangle race and party and so hard to start calling you know, states racist every time they enact a partisan measure. It's just hard for courts to reach that point. It would solve that problem by focusing directly on the partisanship. Uh, The other thing is, as I understand it, in the last decade, redistricting has gotten so sophisticated thanks to the level of data we have and thanks to computer programming that you can essentially draw a district that stays in the same party's hands very efficiently for the whole decade. Justice O'Connor back in the 1980s said that redistricting was a self-limiting enterprise. You know, if you slice the bologna too thin, you're going to pay the price if there's a small shift in public opinion. I don't think that's true anymore. And the Wisconsin case really shows that, that you know even as Democrats gain in Wisconsin, they're not gaining anything in the state legislature. Uh, so I, I, I'm really uh, torn on this case. Uh, I think everybody else I know is filing a brief in the case on one side or the other, taking a position. I'm just uh, watching and uh, waiting to see uh, what Justice Kennedy decides to have for breakfast that day and, and whether or not <laughs> we're going to rein this in or not, because uh, it's almost certainly going to come down to what he thinks on this question and whether or not he's changed his mind. The last time the court addressed this question was, uh, in a serious way, was in a case called Veith out of Pennsylvania, 2004 case. And in that case, the court divided 4-1-4, really unusual. Four justices led by Scalia said, these cases are non-justiciable. They shouldn't be heard by courts. Four liberal justices offered four different standards, kind of like a beauty pageant for Justice Kennedy, which one do you like? And <laughs> Justice Kennedy in the middle said, these cases are justiciable. I agree with the liberals. But every standard that's been proposed is unworkable. I agree with the conservatives. So let's keep this open and let's see if we can come up with something better. Maybe look at history. Maybe look at computers. Maybe look at the First Amendment. And maybe there's something there. And so, so Gill, which is going to be argued the first week of the term, really setting it up to be a, a major case, you know, is really the last opportunity potentially with Kennedy on the court to take a serious look at this question.
1: I hope the math is what saves us. I mean, I feel like, I think you just put it exactly right. Math is what's gotten us into this problem, right? It's the data and our computational abilities um, that has really allowed us to gerrymander with such precision, as you put it, um, You know, keep party control in one hand throughout an entire census. But math is also how we're going to get out of it and I think find some real kind of Computational algorithms that are kind of geometrically based that's going to work out, you know So Joe you were saying you put in a, a nonpartisan commission, man I would put it in a, you know, nonpartisan commission of, of robots I want Watson drawing the districts at this point
0: for the record. This now marks two consecutive oh my god, episodes right. where Ellie thinks It's all gonna work out if we just put robots in charge. Oh my god, you're right. Yeah No, you've 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 turned the corner. Are you <laughs> are you one of them? <laughs> I've never tested whether or not you're a Cylon.
2: <laughs> I, I would say, uh, Ellie, that uh, you know, for somebody who cares about the Voting Rights Act, as both you and I do, the robots might not be very good at drawing districts that promote minority voting rights. And uh, you know, this is one of the concerns. Uh, and that what we mean by representation is something that might not be able to be done by a computer. I think the better use of computers... And what we're seeing a lot of social scientists trying to do now is let humans design the plan and then run a bunch of computer simulations to ask whether, if you did, say, 10,000 other plans using neutral criteria, would they have a better partisan balance? Some people are trying to use supercomputers to figure this out. So I'm still in favor of humans drawing the lines, but computer-assisted learning can help us to see how much bias there is in particular plan.
1: So whereas I'm going full on robot on the professor is all about cybernetics boom see
2: synchronicity isn't that what it is
0: (laughs) by the way for uh, this is something no listener would know because it happened in the office here the other day but weirdly despite making the argument that robots should be in charge of everything last episode and making that argument again today (laughs) he freaked out like a like a little kid when he heard this apparently fairly trumped up story about facebook's ai getting out of hand and inventing its own language like you went into full terror mode and i was like dude that's what you are arguing for
1: (laughs) i have look i'm a complicated man when it comes to our soon-to-be overlords fair enough um but you know that's that's neither here nor there professor thanks so much um for your insight uh today
0: yeah this was great thanks as always
2: My pleasure, and I hope that you have fun in uh, Sesame Land or whatever it's called. Yay.
0: Meanwhile, I'm going to a bunch of legal conferences. You're going to Netroots, right? I'm going to the ABA annual meeting, then the Netroots meeting, which is less legal, but there are some legal panels there. Then I'm going directly from there to ILTACON, uh, which is the legal tech conference. I have a series of one-way tickets. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to be home for something like 17 days, which I guess that's a good... The president's on a 17-day vacation. It's, I guess that's a good round number to for a trip. My trip will be, well, that's a good question. Hanging out with lawyers for 17 days, is that going to be better or worse than going to Sesame we'll, we'll see. Whatever it is, it's better than going to Jersey like the president is. Fair enough. Anyway, so... Yes, thank you for joining us on the show. And thanks for listening to the show, everybody. Uh, if you are not already subscribed to the show, uh, you should. That way you'll know about it. You should also tell everyone you know that this show is great and amazing. And you should make a review of it on all the various sites that you subscribe through because that helps the algorithm figure out that we're a legal podcast. Follow us on all our work on Above the Law. Also, you can follow me at, at Joseph Patrice, Ellie at Ellie NYC. Professor Hassan has a blog also, uh, an election law blog, which is kind of the go-to place for new developments in all of these things, so you should go there too. Uh, with that, uh, I think I've covered now everything. I think that's right? all the plugs. All right, those were all the plugs we have. Thanks, everybody, and we'll uh, talk to you in a couple weeks. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedLine.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. Hi, my name is Jared Correa. I love fondue, long walks on the beach, and I have a large collection of Grover Washington albums at my home. Oh, I also host a podcast on Legal Talk Network called The Legal Toolkit, where we talk about law practice management issues and Warren Zeefond every month. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or
2: LegalTalkNetwork.com.